0: I've been uh, following a theme and teaching mainly from Matthew chapter 2 over these um, last few weeks and we've been talking about uh, Joseph. We talked about the fathers of Jesus and Joseph and uh, the battle and the willingness for him even though public opinion said, you know, really uh, this child isn't yours, then whose is it? And the kind of... The shame and the misunderstanding that would have come with that. And often that comes with our Christian faith as well. And last week we explored the biblical subject of Herod and Herod's life, Herod the Great. And we thought about Herod who is this ancient historical king and figure that often we don't realise but is mentioned eight times Eight times in the book of Matthew. Here, well actually in chapter 2, mentioned eight times. And yet of course in our nativity scenes and our, our uh, Christmas stories and our reading of the story, we often forget to mention the character Herod. And we forget to mention um, his role in the whole story that took place. And there's a good reason to this because actually the character himself is incredibly dark, incredibly evil. And and we know this because as we read Matthew chapter 2, we see the juxtaposition between great light has entered the world and we see that there's great darkness that is present and that is there and is at work. And I... You can even see this playing out. Of course, Herod was a controlling individual. He was ambitious. He was a tyrant. He rebuilt the second temple. And then at the end of his days, put a great big eagle on the second temple. He was, had an appetite. He had 10 wives, five, 15 sons. 500 concubines, he built palaces with safety rooms because he was paranoid that somebody was going to bump him off. And before he died, he um, locked up all 100 Jewish leaders and declared that if he died that day, then, then they were all to be massacred themselves so that at least Jerusalem would weep in some way because of his death. And of course, when he died, Jerusalem rejoiced, and all the people were let out of the prisons. And they were dancing around, because he was such a miserable individual. Such an image of darkness, such an image of the world's kingdom. The second most richest person in the Roman Empire. His tax payment to Caesar Augustus, Octavian, was the biggest check in the whole of the um, Roman Empire. What he represented and the way he worked, he was that multi-billionaire in this this whole Roman world. But in the middle of this corruption, in the middle of his great building enterprises, in the middle of his arrogance, in the middle of him killing his first three sons and killing his brother-in-laws, he killed his mother-in-law. Christmas is coming. You may sympathize, but or you may not, but you think you've got problems with family tension. This is out of control. this is wrong, this is so dark. And let me read you from verse 16 of Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter two. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise man outwitted him he sent soldiers all the sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around bethlehem who were 2 years old and under based on the wise men's reports of the star's first appearance herod's brutal actions fulfilled what god had spoken through the prophet jeremiah a cry was heard in ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. We don't talk about the genocide that took place around the birth of Christ. The great light entered the world, and yet the acts of Herod in this hideous act, probably 30 children or so, were murdered in a community the size of Bethlehem. It's not recorded because in the ancient world, uh, people were murdered all the time. I mean, there were 3,000 people he murdered in in the temple itself uh, when they rebelled at one time. I mean, he was known To be murderous. So, 30 children under the age of two, when children weren't even considered to be children uh, in the Roman Empire until they were two, were really, really was irrelevant. It was nothing. But it was not irrelevant to God because the prophet Jeremiah spoke about the pain of Bethlehem and spoke about the weeping of Rachel and spoke about the agony that took place. And this is the reality that a great light enters the world because we know how dark this world really is. That even though Herod is a unique individual, every one of us has a little bit of Herod within our lives and within our hearts. Every one of us can experience that that pain. Every one of us can put ourselves on the throne and be that ambitious, that controlling, that furious, that angry individual that is paranoid if we allow sin to take hold of our lives and we allow sin to grab hold of us. But the message of Christmas is that there is Herod's way or there is heaven's way. And as believers, our calling is to be transformed by the power of Christ that we may live in heaven's way, in the kingdom principles, that we may love rather than hate. We may be give rather than be uh, grabbing, that we may be a person, an individual transformed by the power and the work of the gospel within our lives. But there is always this battle within uh, in the world and within Western society and within our own lives. And it's the battle of darkness against light and who is on the throne of our lives. Who is number one in our life? Who are we serving? The kings who visited the baby Jesus in the manger, the wise men with their gifts and their, their glorious moment of bowing their knee towards Christ, knew exactly where the answer lay. The answer for the world's darkness lay in worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you know how dark the world can be. I was in Jerusalem. And you can't go to Jerusalem really without going to the Holocaust Museum. National Museum. The first thing that strikes you about this museum is that it is built like an industrial complex. It's built out of solid concrete. It has a feel of of the industrial chimneys about it. And as you move from exhibition to exhibition, you travel through the journey that the Jewish people experienced in the 1940s in terms of the systematic extermination of over 6 million in the Jewish community. That is harrowing enough. I mean, it doesn't take much to make me cry. I mean, I'm just like, oh... You know, I'm, I even cried at my twelve-year-olds into the Flash. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is. Probably not. It's like a superhero little movie thing, and I'm even crying at the end of that. So put me—it's pathetic. Uh, put me, put me into there, and I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, 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 I'm in bits. But then there's a cavern you go to. And you walk into this cavern and there's all little lights shining. There's pictures of children. It is the memorial to the children that died in the Holocaust. And in the background there's a sound. And that sound is the names being read out one after another. Of 1.5 million children that died. I can tell you that anybody that stands there is profoundly impacted. But for every name and for every memorial, It makes you realise how dark the human heart truly can be. And it makes you realise... How much we need God to enter this world and how much we need the salvation of Christ and how much we need the power of sin and Satan and death to be broken. And the message of Christmas is that in Christ Jesus, he comes with a great light and this light shines in a great darkness and Emmanuel, God with us, has come down because God sees the suffering and the pain and the agony of humanity and he brings an answer and that answer is Jesus Christ. And when you and I Celebrate the advent of the coming of the incarnation of everything of God that dwells within humanity, that God became man. We are celebrating Jesus is the ultimate example of the pinnacle of humanity, of what each one of us are aiming to be and aiming to become, that we want to become like Christ. And boy, doesn't this world need... People that are willing to live like Jesus. Because the power of the work of Christmas is still working in lives. Because Christmas leads to Easter. And Easter leads to the resurrection. And the resurrection leads to redemption. And God's always into redeeming broken lives. And you may need to... Deal as I do with a little bit of Herod that tries to reign in my life Tony testified that she was lay, willing to lay down one throne and serve another throne so the the, the divine couple if you like Mary and Joseph with Jesus, the gift, the baby, in arms. Because of Herod's actions, they become refugees. They take a journey from Bethlehem and that region in Judea to Egypt. And they go to Egypt. Imagine what they would have been going through. I don't know if you've ever had to flee from anywhere where you've been afraid of um, Many of us in this church, our elder generation, can tell stories of pain and fleeing from the Second World War, indeed from the First World War family histories as they left the chaos of what was Central Europe. And they know a little bit about the refugee nature. But here, a refugee is somebody that is fleeing the danger of a government, is fleeing the tyranny of what is taking place. They're fleeing because they're in danger of their life. They can't take all of their possessions, but they've got to make a hideous long journey to find freedom and safety. And Mary and Joseph, with Jesus in arms, now have to walk 350 miles south West towards Egypt because he's going into Egypt to escape the hands of King Herod. I wonder what they would have felt like. I mean, you've had quite an experience. You've had angels appearing. You've had miracles taking place. You've had kings turning up or wise men from Iran who were able to read the stars and understand the signs of the times, arrive with gold, with frankincense, and with myrrh. And you've had choirs singing. You've had miracles happening. You've had dreams and visitations. And all of a sudden now, you've got to become a refugee, and you've got to run for your life, because Herod is killing every child in the Bethlehem area, and off you go. I, I find that Christian life's a little bit like that. There's at times when there's immense blessing and intimacy, and God is moving and God is speaking, but suddenly, then, even in the middle of the supernatural and the middle of God speaking through His Word and doing things, then you find yourself on a journey that you never expected. And sometimes we face that, don't we? Have you ever wondered where they went? In Egypt? I mean, in Egypt they spoke a different language. I don't know whether Joseph or Mary spoke. Greek. They would have spoken Greek there, but there was the original Egyptian language. Where would they have gone? They would have to found a place of work. They had financial resources because they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I'm sure as they're fleeing to Egypt, they would have used some of that gold to sustain them in that period while they were in Egypt. Most theologians agree that they would have gone to Alexandria. Alexandria. Why Alexandria? Because that city port had a Jewish quarter... In fact, out of the five quarters of that Roman city, which was founded by Alexander the Great, 300 B- BC, 300 years before, had been developed by Cleopatra, and now many Jews live there. We know that many Jews live there because there was this massive synagogue in the center of Alexandria where all the Jewish community, artisans um, where merchants and people would gather. It was this wonderful port had been built, and there was one of the seven wonders of the world. The first, and at that point, the largest structure in the world was built in Alexandria, and that was a lighthouse that was shaped like a, I guess, a wedding cake, Um, square blocks, three square blocks on top of each other to a very small block. And there they would have a fire that blazed at night. So all the ships that came from Rome to pick up the grain that went back to Rome to make the bread for the Roman Empire, Alexandria was the key rich port. And when the Great Rebellion happened in 70 AD, there were fifty thousand Jews murdered in Alexandria some uh, what seventy years after the birth of Christ, and they were murdered there. so we know that this was a thriving Jewish community with Jewish courts and Jewish laws that, that was there amongst the Greeks and the Egyptians amongst the Romans and there was this massive, massive lighthouse that shone across the Mediterranean Sea to say this is a Alexandria. So it's strange where you imagine the son of the living God ends up in the most important Roman port outside of the Roman, uh, Rome itself. Ended up right there in Egypt. With the largest lighthouse in the world. We don't know how long they stayed there. Maybe some theologians say a couple of years, others say up to 10 years. So maybe the little boy Jesus ran around the streets of those square pathways and and, and the way Roman city were laid out. But you realize that when you follow Christ and you think about refugees and you think about their pain... The reason we understand that we care for refugees and we care for those who are fleeing and we care for those that are broken is because Christ always understands those that are weak, those that are broken, those that are fleeing, those that are in agony. And you don't know quite where you're going to end up with Jesus Christ. They ended up in Alexandria, as we can best understand. But God is with you every step of the way. And you've ended up in places in your life where you never expected to end up. And you're here, and you're going, how did I get here? I've had such blessing, I've had such pain, and now I'm living in Alexandria... And yet, there's always a lighthouse that is the largest lighthouse in the whole of the cosmos that is blazing bright. And the lightest, the greatest lighthouse in all of the cosmos is the coming of Jesus Christ to the world. And if you are lost, you do not need Alexandria. You do not need the wisdom of the Greeks. You do not need the, the, the finesse of Herod's palace. What you and I need is the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ that will guide you in the way that you are called to go if you follow his light he is the light and I just find it ironic that the light of the world ends up by a lighthouse I don't know just kind of poetic I find it poetic you probably think you need to eat more fruitcake pastor Phil and then they return. Where do they return to? Look at, at verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. I made the point last week that, 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 that somebody knew when Herod died, it was not only the people, but God Himself, and an angel knew. He so said, Get up. The angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. So where did they go? They didn't go to Jerusalem. They chose to go to Nazareth. A small village again. So they've lived in Alexandria and now they're in Nazareth. Wow! It is a, it, this was a small village. Today it's, I don't know, perhaps 250,000 people live there and it's a nightmare to drive round. Uh, but there is a little spot where there is a, 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 a moment where they've rebuilt, a Christian mission has rebuilt the original village that Jesus would have lived in. And it's not impressive the main industry is olive oil, and there's farming, but the land is so sort of barren that they've had to build terraces to be able to farm, and, and the little streets and the little, little houses in the small community, that, that there he is now raised in this small Galilean town. And what did, what did Nathaniel say about Nazareth? In what? Uh, John chapter 1, verse 46, he says, Can anything good come out of that place? Have you noticed how we like to talk about different places and look down on other places? I was in Kamloops recently. You see? Can anything good come out of Kamloops? I cracked a joke in Kamloops about Kelowna. Do you know what they did? They did. And really hard. Look at this. Why is the son of the living God in Nazareth and not in Jerusalem? Why, having been to Bethlehem, a small, insignificant village in one sense, although the birthplace of, of David, of course, have gone down to Alexandria and experienced the height of Egyptian culture at that time. And now they return, presumably still with an amount of wealth, and they don't go back to Jerusalem, probably because Herod's son is now ruling there, perhaps, but they end up in, in a place where people laugh and people mock. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was born in Israel and not in Rome? Why Jesus was born in Israel, which actually, when you go and visit, isn't the most impressive kind of landscape. I mean, even Mount Carmel isn't really that that high. It's like Black Mountain, really. You get up there. Have you ever wondered why he ended up in Nazareth? why he wasn't born in the Persian Empire or the Assyrian Empire or even the greatest, longest-living empire, why he was born in a country that spent 80% of its time either in rebellion against God or ruled by other rulers and rarely had any real freedom and rarely you know, prospered uh, without civil war and problems and difficulties and, and, and came. Have you wondered... Why, why God seems to choose the underdog. Why God seems to choose Nazareth and not Jerusalem. Why God seems to choose, you know, Isaac rather than Ishmael. Why God seems to choose a shepherd's boy, the youngest boy in the family, rather than any of the older ones in a culture where it was all about the first son, why he chose Jacob, the lying, scheming one, instead of the strong Esau, the firstborn. I mean, you theolo- theologically, you, you, you kind of work out reasons why in our minds, but there's a pattern why, why God chooses Sarah rather to carry the blessing rather than the 90-year-old woman. Has a baby where, where beauty and fertility was the greatest thing in the ancient world. Why why did God choose a Sarah instead of a Hagar? Why, why was that? Well, I mean, she was an old lady. I mean, not many of us, I would guess, would want that promise. Why does God do this? Why does God... God choose a Hannah who is barren. Choose a Elizabeth in her old age to bring John the Baptist. Is it because God is utterly committed to the underdog? And really, if you're an underdog, therefore God will bless you. You know, if you're a Rachel and good-looking, God will choose Leah, who wasn't so awesome, apparently. What is going on in Scripture when God doesn't choose Jerusalem here for the home of his son, but chooses a small, little, insignificant, mocking village? What is all of this about? The answer isn't that God's always into the underdog. The answer is this the answer is, it is the way of salvation. What do I mean? See, every other world religion, whether it is Islamic, whether it is uh, the great religions of the East, uh, whatever religion it is in the world, the message of every other world religion is this. Be strong, do what is right, work hard, follow the philosophy, and you will make your way somehow to a higher dimension. You will be good enough, you have prayed enough, you have achieved enough. Every other world religion is about how good you can become and how confident you can be and how you can be transformed. But Christianity is not that message. Christianity is this. Come to Jesus in your brokenness and your weakness and your pain. Come to Jesus. To that manger, not to the throne of Herod. Come to Jesus out of your weakness because there's nothing you can do for salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's not about you being awesome and you being amazing. It is a free gift of eternal life. He comes to the barren. He comes to the broken. He comes to the humble. He comes to those who recognize their own brokenness and inability to save themselves. And God looks at you in all of your brokenness, in all of your pain, in all of your weakness, and says, i I know you're not strong enough to do anything in this way. You can't climb the ladder to get up to heaven, but God will climb the ladder to come down to get to you and will give you the gift of eternal life and the gift of salvation and the gift that you need. And it's free and it's his grace and he loves you. And it doesn't matter whether you've been through hell and you've lived like hell and you have done the most dreadful thing and you have lived a life that is broken, when you meet Jesus, it is a free gift of salvation that will radically change your life. That's why. And when you go through a whole of the Bible, it's not just because of the underdog. It's because... The very nature of salvation is that we're a bunch of broken people with messed up lives. And God says, come, receive my forgiveness and my grace and my love. Herod's throne doesn't work. But the manger does. The manger works. So where do I land this? (laughs) Well... We talked about the great darkness that is in the world, illustrated by the genocide, and that this great darkness is addressed by a great light, which is Christ and us and the church. We talked about the experience of fleeing that God identifies with those who are, feel like they're on the run. And you can live in Canadian culture and live in Kelowna and feel like the loneliest person in the world and feel like you're a refugee of your own family and your own country emotionally. And that's why you need salvation. Because we're all refugees and we're washed upon the shores of God's kingdom and he processes us and says, welcome to my kingdom. You're now a citizen of heaven. And then we consider how God seems to prefer Nazareth, the small, insignificant things, than he does the significant, glamorous, amazing things. How can this finish? Well, two things. A comfort and a challenge as I finish. The comfort is this. And I've said it, but I want to say it again. The comfort is this, that through the work of Christ on the cross, and you've seen a baptism today that spoke about a life that was out of control, that was full of addiction and full of pain. You've heard words connected to family problems and life. The comfort is this, that for Tony, who got baptised, and for you and I, with our crazy stories, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be willing to receive God's love, God's forgiveness. Repent of your sins, turn your face towards God, and move away from what God hates and move towards what God loves. And God loves kings and shepherds who are willing to bow. Knee. So that's comfort for me. That's comfort. And that should be comfort for you. And the challenge? Well, the challenge is that within each one of us, and I said this at the beginning, there's a little bit of Herod that is there. You say, but Pastor Phil, I'm born again. I'm no longer an enemy with God. I now have friendship with God. That's what Romans teaches me. It's true. But even the Apostle Paul says, I do things that I hate. In Romans chapter 7. I do these things and I don't want to do them, but I hate doing them. And I realize that in my life, there's still a little bit of Herod. There's still a bit of sin. There's, a, there's evil that can even in my born again state, I, I, I can rebel against God. I can rebel against him. What do you mean? Well, I know that there's a little bit of me that still has what I call the cosmic authority problem. And when sin entered the world, the human race entered the zone whereby we became cosmically opposed to the authority of God. That's why atheists can speak so dismissive about God. There's a cosmic authority issue. And the Christian is somebody that has bowed the knee to the creator God and to the savior Jesus, and we follow Jesus. But there's still a little bit of hostility within each one of our lives. And we've got to be willing to challenge ourselves to deal with the residual hostility that still is there in our hearts. The battle with Herod's way, if you like, and the battle with heaven's way. That's why at times you find it difficult to pray. That's why at times you find it difficult to To read your Bible. That's why you hold resentment against your spouse. That's why you get angry and have bitterness. That's why you churn on negative thoughts. Because there are things that you do that you hate to do. And they are that sort of still present. That flesh is still present within your life. The comfort is you're accepted And this is the process that we call sanctification. And I guess the challenge is, am I willing to lay down the things that I hate? Tony was willing to lay down addiction and to put that to death. But for every one of us, we're still on the journey of who's on the throne and the challenge is, what is going on in our hearts? Is there anger? Is there resentment? Is there areas of our lives that we need to lay down? And we need to work at. You say, yes. Do you know that time when you, God answered your prayer and you said, thank you, God, you answered my prayer. I am never going to be like that again. I'm going to live like this. And what happens? You end up living like this again. Or if you get me out of this problem, I really will be devoted. True? We all battle. And that's why we all need to be in the position of the shepherds and the kings. And we need to bow our knee at the manger. For a great light has come into the world. The comfort is, you're loved. The challenge is, are you willing to keep Jesus number one in your life? Let's pray together. Let's stand together. Just as we pause to finish. What a morning, hallelujah. Maybe you realize yourself, like Tony, that you need salvation. That this morning you need salvation. You've realized that God's love is immense. That God's way is that he takes the humble, the weak, the broken, the old, the barren, the liars, the cheats. The insignificant country in a little spot in the world, the little town like Nazareth. And he says, you're a refugee. I know what that's like. You're a spiritual refugee and it's time for you to come and get your citizenship of heaven. And I received that citizenship and I changed my citizenship from this world to God's kingdom when I was 15. And I did that at a beautiful moment. Maybe you, you're you there and you're Christian. I know many of you are. And so you can just take a moment with the Lord and just ask the Lord to identify the residual hostility that you have where you're resisting what you know God needs to do in your life. A little bit of Herod in us all. But right now, if you want to get right with God and become a Christian this morning, receive salvation. Then just say this prayer I'm going to pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I realize this morning that I am lost. This morning that I'm lost. And I realize that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And this morning I choose to get right with you. And this morning I ask you to forgive me and come into my life and change me. As you gave yourself for me on the cross, I give myself to you. I give myself to you. you've prayed that prayer to get right with God this morning or to um, to become a Christian for the first time then we pray a blessing on your life and there's everybody's just bowed for a moment on this Eve before Christmas Eve you're coming to the stable and you're giving your life to Christ and if that's you why not just lift your hand up and I'm not going to embarrass anybody. And by lifting your hand up, you're saying, Pastor Phil, pray for me. I respond this morning to the call to give my whole life to Jesus. Is there anybody? Just slip your hand up. This morning. This morning, you say yes to Jesus in the balcony. Father, we pray that you will touch hearts and lives and those you're ministering to. And we pray, God, that you will bring salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.